Welcome to the Conservation Council of South Australia and in particular to this evening's talk by Rod Taylor who is over from Canberra. Uh, Sustainable Population Australia is hosting this meeting um, and we are an active member of the Conservation Council but we won't be talking about uh, sustainable population tonight, it's Rod's evening. And we welcome the Conservation Council's support for today's event. Um, firstly, a few details on Rod Taylor. Rod lives in Canberra and will give similar talks over the coming weeks in Brisbane, at least. And two uh, more in Canberra. Oh, okay. Uh, Rod is a science writer and broadcaster. His science columns have been running in the Fairfax media and ACM media, which includes papers like the Canberra Times, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. uh, for over 14 years. He's previously been editor uh, and, or author of other books on sustainability, the environment and economics. And uh, Rob's got a couple of his books with him tonight. Um, and I think you're in Adelaide for a couple of nights after a recent trip on the GAN. Um, <laughs> so, uh, welcome. Um, now, in his talk today, Rod will outline the problems and the solutions raised in the new book, the, the green one there. This one. Uh, that one. Uh, the Path to a Sustainable Civilization, co-authored with Mark Diesendorf. Uh, over to you, Rod. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, and uh, especially to uh, Stephen and Gary. Gary, so Greg and Gary for coming, and to you for coming along today. Uh, we've just come from a very nice hotel in Darwin, and I was sitting there having breakfast, and I'm thinking, you know, there's something really weird about this. By the pool, and it's all very comfortable, and there's all the food I could possibly eat, the fresh fruit, the muesli, the eggs, the toast, the coffee, the tea, and all the staff are fluttering around trying to make things as perfect as possible for me. And I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of strange. It's, it's this great conjuring trick. Because all this stuff appears on the table in the, in the restaurant as if by magic. And where does it come from? I don't really have a good sense of where it comes from. Like, yes, all of the apricots come from uh, the orchard somewhere, but is it grown sustainably or is it uh, uh, grown with un unreasonable labour conditions or something like that? And, uh, I'm kind of feel disconnected, and it's a big. It's it's almost by magic, right? Now, if I take my mobile phone here, and this is an even more extreme example, you look at the things that go into a mobile phone. There's something like twenty or thirty different metals: zinc, cadmium, uh, lithium, iron, copper, etc., etc., etc. And it all goes into making this phone. But from my point of view, I went into a shop. And there it was sitting in a box, and I just got it, and, I'm, and now I'm using it. Now, when the phone dies in a couple of years' time, uh, and I'm going to try and do the right thing, I put it in a recycling bin and hope like hell that uh, all the materials get pulled out of this in some usable form. But it's really difficult getting the recycling materials out of this, and I'm going to talk a bit more about the circular economy uh, in a minute. But uh, 
The thing is, I'm part of a really short window into the lifespan of that product. So it came from out there, I've got it for a while, and then it disappears to somewhere else, and I don't know where it's going to go. So if I went to an indigenous person living on the land and I said, oh, so that spear, that basket, that bowl, where did that come from? And they would go, oh, uh, from that tree over there, or they made it and I traded it. So there's this intimate connection with the land. And if they lived unsustainably, they knew, they pretty quickly knew whether uh, it was sustainable. Because if they didn't live sustainably, they'd starve. But because I'm disconnected from the products of our civilization, and you've got to say it's a triumph of our economy that this stuff gets delivered to us with this amazing efficiency and the fact that I do almost nothing other than walk into a shop and wave a bit of plastic at the counter and it comes to me, then that's, that's quite remarkable. But the danger is that I'm disconnected from the origin of that product and where it goes afterwards. And if it's unsustainable, uh, I won't necessarily know. <coughs> And that's a very dangerous place for us to be, and especially right now uh, as we go into a crisis of sustainability. Now, the reason that Mark Diesendorf and I wrote this book is, is because so much of the conversation about sustainability is really, really shallow. You know, imagine if you went to the doctor and you said to the doctor, hey, I'm feeling unwell, I can't walk for more than a few blocks, and I run out of breath, and I just constantly feel sick. And the doctor said to you, oh, don't worry, just take these pills, right? And what you'd really expect the doctor to go is, okay, so have you looked at your blood sugar? Uh, have you tried X? Maybe you should think about your lifestyle. Have you thought about giving up smoking? So the crisis facing humanity now is so severe that uh, a, a fundamental problem requires a fundamental solution. And nothing less than that will, will suffice. And so what we're trying to do, Mark Diesendorf and I, with this book is to pull back the layers and look under the cover. And so we want to talk about myths, right? Now, originally, we were going to call this talk uh, Forbidden Topics of Sustainability or Taboo Topics of Sustainability, but that sounds a bit too much like a conspiracy theory, and I don't really want to go there with conspiracy theories, but there's still quite a bit of truth in it. And these myths are on the spectrum from just comforting stories to make us feel okay to half-truths to outright lies that are trying to convince us that everything is going to be just fine. Well, everything is not fine. Uh, we are an extremely dangerous moment in history. So um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to skim very quickly across the, some of the myths, and uh, I won't get all of them, but I'm sure you've got a few of your own. And I don't have time to go through these in, in great depth because this would take weeks and there would be a whole semester worth of study. 
But before I go on, I just want to say a quick hello to some special guests at the back of the room here. <laughs> and you're trying to hide uh, Professor Stephen Hale, Gabrielle Bond, uh, who run a fantastic weekend course called Rethinking Capitalism. And a lot of our book here is a, is a considerable overlap with that. Now, I did that course about a month ago, and it's very reasonably priced, and I got a huge amount. And make sure you talk to them because uh, it's extremely worthwhile. Oh, and quickly, I should mention my other book, just a little sales pitch here. This is the, uh, uh, the story of 10 people, 10 environmentalists who are uh, uh, in Australia. And, uh, and a big thank you to Heather, who's sitting up the back here, because Heather is, is an expert in renewable energy in her own right. And Heather was a huge help to me in putting this book together. And there's people from South Australia. There's three South Australians in this book, including Monica Oliphant, who was, yes, a very famous name. She was one of the first people anywhere in the world to build a working laser. And she's been a powerhouse of uh, renewable energy. So that, I've got that book with me as well. All right, now onto the myths. I'm going to skim very quickly across these and then I'm going to go into detail a bit more about some of them. So the first myth is that we've got time. Uh, actually, we don't have time. Well, we've spent uh, 30, 40 years saying we've got 10 years to fix this problem. Now look where we are. And I look in the news now. In fact, I can't bear to look at the news. Uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet appears to have hit a tipping point. There are signs that the uh, Atlantic current, the Gulf Stream that brings warm water from Mexico up to Western Europe is becoming destabilised and, and may stop operating properly in a, in a time frame about... 20 years. Take your pick. These things are going on right now and uh, it's really precarious and the best we can hope for now I think is a soft landing. That, that's how serious it is. Uh, the next myth is about growth and trickle-down economics and uh, we have some uh, experts in that with us. Uh, I'll come back and talk more about that. The next one is the, the technology myth, that all we need is a few solar panels, a few wind turbines, some carbon capture and storage, electric vehicles, and everything will be fine. Well, Mark Diesendorf and I strongly advocate uh, renewable energy, but it's not nearly sufficient because that taps into the question of growth. And uh, yeah, so I'm gonna come back and talk more about growth then we are consuming resources at a prodigious rate and that sort of is the people talk about the circular economy and I'm going to talk more about that. And then there's these three interrelated areas that sort of come together in the, uh, the, the topic of sustainability. Now, in the book, you notice it says the path to sustainable civilization. So that's the scope that Mark and I have picked. We're not just talking about environmental sustainability. We're talking about the sustainability of civilization itself. And by that, I mean the global civilization. That's the thing that feeds us, that houses us, this room, all the energy. They're all products of civilization. And we can't live without it, or not remotely like what we are now. Uh, so the three spheres are, will be familiar to most of you, what you call the triple bottom line. There's the uh, environment and the natural resources, 
there's society, and then there's the economy. Now, neoliberal, neoclassical economics puts the economy as being the almost like a thing that lives on its own and harvests stuff from the environment and from society, but without a viable environment, you do not have a viable economy. And without a viable society, you do not have a viable economy. So the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment and society, not the other way around. So when you hear talk that, oh, we need more GDP, we need more growth, then uh, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. Now, there is another myth in there which kind of uh, got a different flavour, and that's for those of us in the environment movement. We, we all like to talk about environmental solutions, and I do as much as anybody else. But we tend to forget that an environmental solution has to be economically viable at the same time. Because if you can't pay for it in the long term, you can't do it. It's quite simple, but we tend to forget it. And uh, all right, so the next one is that... Uh, the, the the market will will fix it. We just leave it to the market, and that's part of the neoliberal philosophy. And if you go back to uh, one of the great doyens of uh, neoliberalism, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and of course Ronald Reagan, uh, in the early 1980s, uh, Margaret Thatcher said something like, "There is no such thing as society." Well, it's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard a politician say, and that is there's a lot of competition for that uh, award. And I don't think... I don't think Margaret Thatcher really believed there was no such thing as society. What she was really saying is society is not important. And you know what? Even a progressive US president, uh, Bill Clinton in his presidential campaign had the slogan, it's the economy, stupid. All right, so let's look at what happened in Brixton, 1982, I think it was thereabouts. You had a socially disadvantaged community, uh, high unemployment, uh, social disadvantage, lack of opportunity, lack of opportunity, right? And there was a a seemingly minor event and uh, although the police were targeting people from different ethnic communities, right? So you had racism going on in the police force. And then something happened and it just triggered the riots. And the cars were turned over, shops were burnt. Well, Margaret Thatcher, how did that work for you, your economy? Did something like 100 million pounds worth of damage, social dislocation, people with businesses destroyed? Think of the economic impact of what happens when you forget society. So you cannot just go and say there is no such thing as society because, Margaret, there is and we need it. And uh, someone was telling me uh, the other day that uh, they were looking at something in the United States and there's the hospital, right? This person, she comes from a poor community. She can't afford to go to the private hospital. So the private hospital, like you're having a health emergency of some sort, they shift her over to the public hospital and the public hospital goes, you know what, we can't cope with you. And you know what they did? They stuck her in a wheelchair and wheeled her out onto the street. Now, if, th- if that's what your life is like in the United States, 
uh, you'd be pissed off, wouldn't you? Now, look at the, the, the social cohesion of the United States. Look at the state of uh, the United States. How are they doing right now? Uh, and I don't want to go naming our least favourite politician, but you know who I mean. People like him are largely a product of a, of a community, of a society that is really, really unhappy. And uh, so we cannot afford to uh, forget society. Uh, the next one is now I'm in the presence of a couple of people who really know this topic far better than I do, but this one is that the government cannot afford it. And uh, the idea, the common notion is that uh, the federal government uh, needs taxes to pay for all the social programs, environmental programs, because the kind of stuff we're talking about costs money, let's face it. You want to build uh, renewable energy things, you want to do social programs, health services and so on and so on, costs money. And uh, where does that money come from? Well, it doesn't come from taxation. The government effectively creates its own money. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to make any claims here. But uh, uh, if you don't mind me mentioning you again, Stephen, uh, people might like to talk to you uh, more about that. <laughs> but uh, the fact is the government can afford it. And the limitation is not money. The limitation is the productive capacity of the economy. Am I right? Yes, thank you. All right, cool, sure. Uh, all right. All right, so let's go in now to a bit more detail about some of the things that I've mentioned. And I'm going to start with this word sustainability. There is few words in the English language that is more abused right now than the word sustainability. So, like, I've just come from uh, Darwin, and you, I didn't see this on this trip, I have to say, but eco you slap the word eco in front of your product and suddenly, oh, it's magically sustainable or green. It's now a sustainable product. Well, no, it's not. Uh, it, it, it might be a lot better than the alternative. So I don't want to say we shouldn't do those things if they're genuine, but it kind of gives us this false sense that uh, we're doing enough. So literally sustainability means a thing that cannot continue, Right. Now, there's a more technical definition, which I won't go into, but, uh, you know, that you're not consuming more resources than you can uh, replace. But literally, sustainability means a thing that cannot continue. Now, I think I'm in pretty good company that no one here will disagree with the statement if I say what we are doing right now is not sustainable, Right. So what's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that it's going to stop. And, and as I've already said, the, the impact of that is a global scale. The human occupation of this planet has grown to such a scale that uh, when we do something that's not sustainable, it's not a local effect, it's the entire planet because the, the global uh, economy is all intricately connected. Right, the next one is growth, and uh, if there's one takeaway message from today, I would say that this is one of them, that we cannot continue growing indefinitely. So take this little experiment. At one gram of yeast, you put it in warm, sugary water, 
and you let it sit there and 90 minutes later one gram is now two grams and leave it for another 90 minutes two grams is now four grams that's exponential growth guess what happens you leave it and this I have to check this number multiple times and I was working it out three weeks roughly and that yeast is now exceeded the mass of the planet earth that's sustainable that's not sustainable rather that's that's exponential growth so when we hear someone saying oh gdp has been three percent five percent year on year on year uh, that's compound interest and we have passed the limits of sustainability uh, I think around about 1950, middle of last, something like the 1970, something like I forget the, the date, but the uh, Earth Overshoot Day is the 1st of August. And, and for Australia, because we consume much more, I think it's about the 1st or 2nd of March, something like that. <coughs> so growth is population uh, and consumption. Now, this event is sponsored by Sustainable Population Australia. When was the last time you heard a politician say, I think we have a population problem, our population is too high, our growth is too high? Do you know what the net overseas migration is for the, coming, for the current year? It's, uh, I think it's 400, 450,000, something like that, right? Uh, that is just absolutely insane. So where I come from, Canberra, population is about 400,000. Guess what? That means we've got to build the population, a city, in effect, the size of Canberra in one year. All the infrastructure, all the water consumption we're going to be, all the CO2 we're going to generate, etc., etc. That's That's population growth. So I call population the grand multiplier. And then, of course, there's consumption. And as I've indicated we in the Western world, or they call it the global north, which I don't like that term because I've come from the south. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we consume far more than uh, our share of the, of the planet. And there's a concept. Who's, who's heard of the concept of the donut, Kate Rayworth's donut? Okay, so some people have, so I'll quickly, quickly mention it. There are two ceilings. Um, actually, before I go into that, there's a thing called the planetary boundaries. Oh, so I'm going back a step now. Who's heard of the planetary boundaries? Okay, most of you. The planetary boundaries are basically the safe operating limits for the planet. So in my body, you might say my safe operating limits, my body temperature of 40 degrees, I'm really pushing what's safe. My blood uh, sugar, my blood cholesterol, uh, and so on and so on. What we're seeing right now is the safe operating limits for the planet. There are planetary boundaries. We've passed six of them. And that's things like uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, fresh water, uh, climate change, ocean acidification, and, and so on. So the Earth is well past, uh, it's in a serious condition of overshoot right now. And that's largely the product of growth. And so what you hear, this is why I call this a myth, because you hear this myth, oh, we just need to grow the economy and everything will be just fine. Well, everything is not fine. And going along with that is this notion of decoupling. 
And so that's the, the, the next myth is the technology myth that, oh, we've just got carbon capture restorage, electric vehicles, solar panels and uh, wind turbines and so on. Well, the so-called uh, decoupling idea is that, you know, the technology will allow us to grow the economy and then all the environment impacts will, will sort of be mitigated or they will disappear. Well, there's extremely poor evidence that, that is even possible and uh, so that, that's a really pernicious myth. Now, I've got to say that um, uh, Mark Deesendorf and I strongly support the idea of uh, renewable energy. It's absolutely essential, but it's not nearly sufficient. And uh, Mark was telling us about uh, the statistic that he, he had, and it was like about the year 2000, 80% of global energy was from fossil sources, right? That's energy, not just electricity, but transport industry and so on. 80% was from fossil sources. 20 years later, guess what the number is? 80%. It's still 80%. And that's despite the prodigious growth of uh, renewable energy. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible. It's happening because the economy is growing at the same time. So we're running flat out to catch a moving target, and we're never going to catch it as long as that target keeps going. All right, now... There's, there's a bunch of more technical myths that uh, Mark goes into, into into quite a bit more detail. Uh, and these are the different kind of myths about renewable energy. These are the ones that the naysayers throw at us. Things like the, uh, the, the payback time on CO2 emissions, so that it's not compatible with agriculture, the baseload power and, and that, those kinds of things. They're really designed to undermine uh, renewable energy and almost entirely they, they're, they're just completely nonsense. So um, we, we, we need renewable energy, but we can't keep up. All right, so the other thing about renewable energy is we call it renewable energy, but really we should call it zero emissions because guess what? A wind turbine, one wind turbine, you know how much copper it uses to build? Four tonnes four tonnes of copper in one wind turbine. And that copper uh, came out of a hole in the ground. Have any of you ever visited one of the uh, iron ore mine sites like Mount Tom Price or one of those? You have? Yeah. And we went there. It used to be a mountain about 100 metres tall. And now when you go there, you look into this big hole in the ground. It's about 100 metres deep. And it's not just deep, but it's really wide. That hole represents uh, an asset that we have now spent. Okay? That money, inverted commas, has gone. So E.F. Schumacher wrote his famous book, Small is Beautiful, and he said, in our economy, we're spending capital or our assets as if it were income. So imagine going to your bank manager, your financial advisor, and he said, my financial strategy is going to be to sell everything I've got and just spend it as fast as I can. And he would go, or she would go, uh, I don't think so. So renewable energy, yes, but uh, again, we've got to keep up with growth. So you might say, right, now let's have the circular economy. 
right? So we can harvest all the resources that, uh, that go in, and sure, that'll get us out of trouble. Well, guess what? Uh, the economy is growing at the same time, so you can't harvest more in a circular economy than went into it in the first place. But the other thing that you don't hear about the circular economy is that it leaks. And, and we've got a diagram in here, it leaks like a bloody sieve. So you, you dig up the resources, bits of the material drop out, you lose it, it goes into the manufacturing, bits can't get used, it drops out and you lose it, it goes to distribution, sales, the consumer, the end user, and they don't stick it in the recycling bin. It, it just disappears. Uh, it, it goes into a truck, a recycling truck, and not all of it gets picked up properly. The truck is contaminated with other stuff, so the recycling uh, recipients go, they reject it. And my br- brother-in-law used to drive a recycling truck, and he'd pull up, and they go, no, too much crap, and that go away. goes into landfill. Now, I'm not arguing against the circular economy. I'm absolutely clear about that. I'm not arguing against it. We live in what I call the dud economy, D-U-D. We dig it up, we use it, and we dig another hole, we bury it. And it's a dud, and it's the linear economy, right? We, can't, we just can't keep doing that. So take, take these, the mobile phone, the manufacturers, the, the, the purveyors of these things, the biggest competitor to this year's product is last year's product. And look, here we've got a laptop. Uh, at some stage, that won't take software upgrades anymore. Apple sued somebody on the internet because, because they published uh, in, uh, instructions about how to repair a mobile phone. They sued them, right? And there are so many examples. So we can do a shirt load better than we are right now. And... I think it would be a really good idea if we paid that real price. So in economics, there's a thing called an externality, and an externality is a thing that somebody else pays. So if I just chuck this away and it goes down the stream or whatever, uh, that's somebody else's problem, not my problem. That's an externality. I'm not paying. And and me as a consumer, I am complicit in the purchase of this because I'm not paying the life cycle cost of it. So I think that's one thing that would be really good if we could if we could change that. And uh, I'll actually to tell you a quick anecdote, and, and it sort of relates to what I was saying about the, the the breakfast I was eating in the hotel and this as well. You know, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's a there's a story in there which I love. And there's this uh, a soccer pitch or a cricket match or whatever. I think it's a soccer match. And an alien spaceship, it, it, you know, it lands behind the goalposts, and nobody can see it. And guess what? It's protected by somebody else's problem field that <laughs> makes it invisible, right? And an externality is a bit is a bit like that. The other thing we can do with uh, mobile phones and, uh, and all of our products is we can demand that the manufacturers uh, the right to repair. And in Europe, there's a really strong movement for that. And, uh, and, and just stop them from building in obsolescence. So Vance Packard, I think in 1970, something like that, wrote his book, a built-in, uh, talked about building obsolescence. Uh, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. So that's the circular uh, e- economy. Now, um, 
I'm, I think I might wind, start to wind it up here, but I don't want to leave you with a feeling that uh, uh, that it's uh, a feeling of hopelessness, right? And, and I've had this conversation with people. You know, you've got to give people hope, and uh, that well, uh, my own view and, and the view of people that I talk to, a lot of people in the sustainability field. Uh, the view is coming pretty widespread now that uh, we are in really dire, dire situation. So how do you how do you deal with hope in that? In that, and really, that's very much a theme of my book here. And I think if you went to a doctor and the, and the doctor said, um, "Look, you've got uh, you have cancer," you know the, the the dreaded C word. Would you want to not know? Would you rather that the doctor didn't tell you that? Would you think that's okay, or would you rather listen? Uh, listen, Rod, you, you've got cancer. Jeez, I hope not. <laughs> uh, and, and then deal with it. De- then deal with the problem. That's where we are right now. So I'm going to give you some more happy stories, and uh, because I don't want you feeling completely uh, in in despair. And I was talking about the circular economy. Well, I just read in uh, The Guardian a couple of days ago a thing, a company in Scotland uh, called Renew Cell, and they're taking shredded uh, cotton and denim material and they're using it as feedstock to make new stuff. They call it circulose. Okay, so that's possible. That's possible. Why is it, why in two thousand twenty three we're doing this now? Why don't we do this in like twenty in in nineteen seventy or whatever? Uh, now uh, the next couple of ideas I got from Erin uh, Remblance, who's uh, uh, really good on these sorts of things, and she has talked about degrowth. And uh, she's, she gave a couple of examples which I wanted to, she wanted to share with you. And this is, the first one is a state in India called Kerala. I think I'm pronouncing it properly. Uh, it has a population of 35 million. And it's, they, they take sustainability really seriously. They, uh, they rate very highly on the Human Development Index. And I think uh, Stephen can probably tell me what that really means, because I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. And the Sustainable Development Index, they rate quite highly as a state uh, on those scales. They have a very high literacy. They, uh, they have low corruption. How about that? Low corruption, that's fantastic. And uh, they have low population growth. And that's in that's Kerala in India. Erin <coughs> mentioned uh, corruption, and uh, I might just quickly mention in passing a thing called state capture, which is very much behind the predicament that we're now in, and that is vested interests have taken over the levers of government. Why are we opening up fossil fuel mines right now? Why are we spending what is it three hundred or something billion on these cursed submarines? Uh, well, it's state capture and the decision to get the submarines, I believe, was heavily influenced by some consultants from the United States working in Australia. And guess what? They were ex-US military. And lo and behold, we now have, we now, we want to become a nuclear armed state is what this really means. Oh, I wasn't telling you happy stories, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next one is uh, Costa Rica. 
and uh, Michael Bayless and myself from uh, Sustainable Population Australia. We interviewed the ambassador a while ago and it was terrific. Very heartwarming to, to hear a positive story about what a country can do and this got, should be an example for all of us, I think, as well as the, the uh, Kerala. And they have a, a principle they call universalism and they think that uh, they believe that health care, education, housing, and these are fundamental human rights and the focus of the state is to make sure that those things are available. So the population growth of uh, Costa Rica went from, uh, in 1960, a uh, high 3%, 3 to 4% or something. That's actually an insanely high number. In uh, 2023, it was less than 1%. So that's, that's what can happen if you really put your minds to it. And they guess what? They have really uh, good, uh, by world ratings, uh, GDP per person. And uh, so uh, look, have a look more about uh, Costa Rica. Now, a quote that also I got from Erin was uh, Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman says words to the effect that when a crisis occurs, whatever ideas are lying around get used. So I think that's a terrific idea because each of us here, we all have our ideas. And if we can share those, we can develop those. And when the time is right, well, we're past the time is right, but when the circumstances, all the, all the cogs come together, then uh, those things should, should go and, and get done. I'm going to leave you with three messages because I've been rambling on now for 40 minutes or thereabouts, and I think that's probably enough. And we'll go to some questions and, and conversation. Uh, there's, there's three takeaway messages that, that I have for you. One is that business as usual will lead to collapse. A current path will lead to collapse. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Then the next one is that uh, growth is largely responsible for that. And state capture, I've already mentioned. We've got to do something about state capture. And to go along with that, groups like this, a group like each of us here today, this is a grassroots uh, event. We are essential to democracy. We are essential to the future. And we can't afford to give up and leave it to the money people who are trying to steer our governments in a way that is not sustainable. So thank you. And uh, now let's... Uh, uh, Gabrielle. Um, yeah, not so much a question. I was wondering if you could continue with your description of the donut model, because we kind of uh, went a roundabout way and we left the donut before we... I did. I, went, I left the donut and we went to the coffee and the hot chocolate. I completely forgot to finish the donut. All right, here, here goes the donut, because I got, I got diverted to the planetary boundaries. Yeah. Uh, what Kate Rayworth has done is she's brought in the, the concept of uh, social sustainability. So there's, they're almost like planetary boundaries. And so there's this safe operating zone. And if you're consuming too much, then you're exceeding the planetary boundaries. But if you're not producing enough... Uh, then you're not meeting the social needs of your population. And so there's this sweet zone right in the middle. And they've done analysis to show countries that are up here that they're not uh, 
they might be meeting most of their social needs, but not the not the environmental needs, or they're not meeting their uh, social needs, but they are meeting their environmental. Needs. So a low consuming con- uh, country, so loosely the global south. Have I given a decent description? Please, please feel to add to that, Gabrielle. Yeah, that's good. And she draws it in a donut shape. Yes. The social foundations are in the middle, and if you're in the middle, you're in the hole, and you're you're not. Yes. You don't have your and it's broken you into sec- uh, sections, isn't it? And the outside is the planetary boundaries. So it's it's like a donut. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's called the donut. Well, thank you, thank you, Gabriel. I'm I'm glad you picked me up on that. John. I want to make a comment and then ask a question. Before I came to this meeting, I looked up two books I had on sustainability. I show them to you. <laughs> Demystifying Sustainability by Washington and Sustainability by Farley and Smith. I'm asking the question, because I've only had your book for about half an hour. Yeah. Are either of them mentioned in your book? Okay, but you don't have to answer that. <laughs> I'll ask this question. I can answer that question. Yeah. Uh, Herman Daly is mentioned in the book, and Josh Farley was the closest colleague of Herman Daly, and in fact, together they wrote the textbook on ecological economics. So, yes, basically, yes, at least one of these. Well, thank you, Stephen. I hope we have two experts I, here. I, I, I beg to differ because Washington <laughs> makes it very clear how to move on and, and, and what are. Required because he gives a whole chapter on it. But we can put that to one side. Let me put you in my position. The path to a sustainable civilization. What's the first step? Uh, <laughs> Recognising that we have a problem. No, we, rec- we already recognise Okay, and understanding what the fundamental causes of it, because yeah. as I said when I was going through the myths, that there is too much shallow thinking about the question of sustainability. So we really have to understand the basic drivers of the problem, not, not just the superficial ones. Right? And I, but I think that's not the step you're looking for. Uh, we need to unwind state capture. Give me the step. Here it is. It's Tuesday morning, tomorrow morning. <coughs> We're going to start to unwind state capture. What am I going to do when I walk out? I I would like to expose state capture. I mean, it's kind of... It it goes on behind closed doors and there's uh, some media... uh, Michael West Media, I'm not sure he does exactly this, but I would like to see it better known who are the people influencing because while they're doing it behind closed doors and we can't see what they're up to, then uh, that's going to keep being a problem. Okay, I appreciate your answer. My own answer is to get out of a few bit, hear a lot of human beings and knock them off. <laughs> Sorry, I missed the last bit. Are <laughs> you volunteering? Yes, yeah. I'm quite happy to volunteer to be a model lot. Uh, people are saying, uh, uh, Martin Greece, I think, is one of them. The number of humans that will be around in the, about the year 2050 will have to be close. To two billion. Yes. Now, presently, we're at eight, and we're progressing towards ten. Yep. Yep. We cannot possibly uh, leave behind when we leave when we leave this planet 
one that will work even remotely satisfactorily for our offspring unless that number is brought down not in little bits, not in Gaza and Israel, but in big numbers. Because if we don't, we lose. I, I agree. I really agree. Population is the, the, the question that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, environment groups don't want to talk about population. It's just too difficult. And I finally managed to doorstop uh, Bob Brown one day because the Greens have very little to say about population. And I said to him, Bob, uh, Bob why, why don't the Greens? And, of course, he's too smart to get caught by, uh, by someone like me. And he said, oh, well, if we were in charge, it would all be different. But uh, we would do something about overseas aid, giving empowering women to control their own fertility would be really high on the list. Good. And, and we, 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 we keep... Of consumption rather than population. No. Sorry, consumption rather than... I think consumption is a more serious problem rather than population. Well, I think they're both. I, I don't like trying to, to, yeah, to split you, them up too much. But, but I think the fact is... Look off five... Um, third world people and you'll have a, a hundredth of the effect of knock, knocking off five billionaires. Yeah. Right? Especially if we get to keep the money. Okay, with, 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 with degrowth, we, we, we in the West, we in the wealthy countries, uh, we have to, we have to uh, degrow. Uh, we have to degrow. And we've got to boost the uh, capabilities of people in, in countries who aren't doing so well. So, yes, we, we, but, but who of us here is going to give up our four-wheel drive, our TV and, and our, uh, our luxury holidays? It's the only way for me to pass on to my grandchildren the chance that I had of living in a reasonable, on a reasonable planet. Yeah. And if you ask me what am I giving up, in one sense, that's putting the cart before the horse. I'm, I'm giving up a lot of other things so that I am decluttered, if you like, and freer to take on some of the issues that you and I have already... Well, I think one of the things we need to do is, is change our attitude to materialism. Materialism, And it really strikes me. I look at the newspaper and it says environmental crisis, environmental crisis. Turn the power on the, on the same page. Buy, 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 buy this. Spend money on this. Don't buy the paper. <laughs> well, there's certain papers, certainly not, yeah. Uh, I, I, I just, John, the other thing, uh, just before going on, is that Hayden, the late Hayden Washington was uh, very close to Mark Diesendorf, so I'm sure his idea is also uh, in the book, both in Washington and, and in Florida. Uh, and I do think we have to be a bit careful when we talk about population. It doesn't sound as though we're talking about going around dropping nuclear bombs on people and wiping out five billion people. Uh, yes, well, let's hope that things like that don't happen. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, Rob, how would you describe a post-growth, sustainable society and living it? What would you like? How, how would I describe the... How would you describe... Uh, we have to have a vision of where we're going to go to, which of course you have, and you, you reproduce very well in the book, which I, 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 strong, I, I strongly recommend people read. Um, how would you describe a post-growth, sustainable society? What would life be like in it? Oh, crikey. That's a tough one. Uh, I think it's, it's one where we value life, where we value the, the quality of our life, which is not measured by necessarily material things. 
and it's not necessarily being you know wearing hair shirts and and living on potatoes you grow in your backyard and nothing else it's a change of values i think is primarily what, what i would think and i've given the examples of uh, costa rica where the, the well-being of people uh, measured by things like the genuine progress indicator and so on, where those things are given primacy over simplistic things like the uh, GDP. Do you want to add to that, uh, Steve? Because I'm sure you could. You I could... noticed uh, any other question. I noticed Ian Penrose saying the sound's not very good, so maybe other questions it might be good if you repeated before answering. Before oh, okay, sorry. So the question, did anyone, do you want me to repeat the question? No, no. Well, he's yeah. gone, he's gone. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, yep. Any easy questions? <laughs> well, I, oh. I, I... I agree with the, uh, the, the concluding... Um, the conclusions you offered around the fact that business as usual is leading to collapse mm. and, and that growth is the primary driver of that. Yeah. In my own work, what I'm thinking about is also the concept of barriers to avoiding collapse, mm. which I think are different from the drivers. Uh, and, and the barriers are essentially <clears throat> around inequality, injustice, um, disparity in power, and ultimately, I think, uh, cultural in terms of uh, human values, beliefs and attitudes. And so the question I would, I would ask is how, in the end, if it requires a change in, in, in human culture, because we've become disassociated over 200 years, as you say, from nature. Uh, we've become very intent on competition rather than collaboration and collectivity. What, what is it, going back to John's question, what is it that is actually going to trigger um, a sufficiently large change in cultural attitudes across the planet that might actually avoid collapse? Uh, because my view is that we won't. I, I, I think we will end up in a situation where at least we will need to adapt to progressive collapse or if it becomes a, a case of going over the tipping points, it will be a case of survival in, in small parts of the world and that will answer John's question in a way about population because over the next 50 years sadly we could see population not increase to 10 million as the UN proposed, as suggested will but rather decline very rapidly due to pandemics, to starvation to natural disasters and to human conflict. So what is it that might actually trigger that change in, in our collective view yeah, uh, that's, that's a really good question. I strongly agree with your comments too about social equality and so on. How do we get change? Well, uh, I was talking to Will Stephan and uh, he said he thinks a crisis, and I think, John, you were, you were saying a crisis, you were interjecting with the word crisis. I, I, I can't see any other way, to be perfectly honest, that... Uh, the thing that really worries me is the lead time of things. So by the time we hit the crisis that it's too late, because we're talking about the, the planetary system, that the response time of the planetary system is measured in tens or hundreds of years. The response time of the political system is me measured in weeks or, or two or three years, maybe. 
And I, I think about the people who arrived in Australia 60 or more thousand years ago, and I imagine that they arrived here like it's a really harsh environment, Australia. And I reckon probably a lot of them did really badly. There was probably starvation, and they had some really, really tough lessons to learn. But they did learn, they adapted to the, the landscape and to the environment here. But they were on a, such a small scale that their effect was local, and then they were able to adapt with that. But civilization, that global thing, is so large, the impact is so big, it's so profound on this planet, that when we tip it, uh, I, I, I hate to think what's going to happen because we won't have time for cultural change. I know that's a pretty gloomy message, but uh, uh, often we humans don't do anything. Look, how many people do you know who smoke or, or they don't exercise enough and then you're going, oh, my God, you should, I wish you wouldn't do that, and then they have a heart attack? Well, it's a bit late. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer than that, I'm, but... Uh, I just uh, add one thing more. I, to, I mean, I think you're right that I don't think we do have time for cultural change to effect a transition to sustainability in a way that avoids collapse because I, for the very reasons you've given. But if, if I've been reading some of the literature from the UK on deep adaptation and Jim Vendell and Rupert Reed, the philosopher, are yeah. writing, have been writing for three or four years now on deep adaptation. And what they're arguing is that we're already in the early stages of collapse now. We can see the signs of that. And what we have to start thinking about is that the ideas that might have led us to that transition to sustainability will actually have to be applied in an adaptive manner to a vastly altered world. Um, and, and that we have to start thinking about this idea of adaptation, or ultimately, possibly, if we leave it too late, the tipping points are overcome and we have catastrophic collapse, then to survive it. So, so that, 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 that's kind of where, in my opinion, we yeah, I, I had this... We need to be more honest about this, I think, in terms of where we're now Look, to having wasted 30 to 40 years uh, of knowing about climate change and done nothing about it. Mark, Mark and I, we really want a peaceful transition to a sustainable society, but I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually on the Zoom before... <laughs> I think, he, I think he might have gone. Yeah. But uh, he said, how are we going to do this without a revolution? And I don't want to be up here saying I'm advocating revolution. Why not? Well, normally all does. Well, a, a violent revolution. We, you know, the, the, Why not? The, 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a wonderful book, and I have one more thing, and I'll shut up. There's a book by Andreas Mahl, which has just been turned into a film, um, called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. <laughs> and, and it's, 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 it's not, it's not a, a terrorist manual. It's actually an incredibly coherent intellectual argument for using some forms of violence towards property, not person, uh, the property of the capitalist system, in order, uh, which is what the, the, the titles convey. Because, in, in fact, probably, that, that's the answer to the question I put to you earlier, I think, that in the end it will require revolution to bring about the sorts of changes we need. Well, uh, I, one thing that I need to do a bit more work on when is tipping points. So we've got a climate tipping point, planetary tipping points. What we need is a social tipping points. And there are examples of, in history of where a society has just suddenly gone, you know, and all the lights have changed. And so I'm thinking of like the, drop, the, the Berlin Wall falling, for example. The, the, it, no one predicted that. Democracy is not going to be able to achieve it 
I have a fear when we talk about some of the changes we would like to see happen, I can't see the instrument of democracy being able to achieve those changes. Where it can never dictate or something or other, but democracy seems to be so handcuffed. All right, listen, okay, so your, your, your question is or comment is that the democracy is handcuffed. I was doing some research, like I was talking about the materials in a, in a mobile phone, uh, and the book is called The Rare Metals War, and it talk about the environmental destruction going on in China. And what really struck me about that is it's okay to destroy the local environment. They're tipping toxic materials into the river and they they don't care or they don't seem to understand what they're doing. So it's okay to destroy the environment, but it's not okay to talk about it. So this is the huge danger in an autocracy is that, uh, in fact, there's an example, um, you know the story of longitude, John Harris designed the, the first chronometers for navigation. There were five uh, British ships sailing off the west coast, I think off Ireland, and one of the sailors went, you know, because uh, they couldn't work out where they were uh, east-west, they didn't know their longitude properly, and this sailor went up to the Admiral and said, oh, we're, we're, we're too far east. And you know what they did? They executed him. (laughs) Guess what happened next? The five ships went to the bottom. And that's what autocracy does. So democracy is incredibly inefficient and is flawed in so many ways. But let's not go talking about dictatorships or autocracy. They're not necessarily going to solve our problem either. The counter-argument to that is, is that a dictatorship with a hell of a lot less people in it and this is what we're looking at, can achieve things much more quickly. Now, there was an American in discussing carbon with Chinese, and he said, this is the sort of thing we need to be doing, starting to take into account. Within three months, the Chinese person he had been speaking to went back to China and was implementing it, because he could do it. He didn't have to go through an election, or whatever it is. He was implementing... Uh, first-class ideas in relation to carbon. Now, this you, you, you can quote the negative examples, and I, and I, and I appreciate hearing them, but they're not necessarily the only examples. And part of what we have to realise is that when we start talking, I, I actually believe if Australia hasn't converted by 2027, and I take that date because we've had three years of burning this bloody bloody country to bits because of the heat and the fires and everything else in the next three years. If we haven't changed dramatically by that time, then Australia's not going to be worth living in. Yeah, I, I, look, I don't know who wants to live in a society where you suddenly disappear because you disagree with the government. But that's not the alternative. I mean, if, if, if you're criticising the current model of democracy, which is a system of representation, yeah. you don't actually have democracy at the moment. And there's a tremendous <coughs> loss of faith in this current system of democracy, which is a system of representative democracy that I agree is, is largely controlled by powerful elites. But no one's suggesting that autocracy is the only alternative. There's a whole body of work around participatory democracy, the concept of sortition. Uh, We've had an example of this in South Australia with the citizens' jury over the nuclear waste dump. And there are experiments happening all around the world around 
this idea of an alternative form of democracy to, to okay yeah I, I, I think, think, think that's a good that's a good point uh, are we feeling that it's time to wind up now anyone who wants to talk to me about joining Extinction Rebellion <laughs> um, yeah there's there's tea coffee biscuits nibbles if you want to see and have a chat you're very welcome to but um Thanks very much for coming tonight. Uh, fascinating discussion afterwards as well. I just wanted to thank Rod for coming here tonight. Thank it, you. It was, um, I've read half your book and I can recommend it. I've certainly learned a lot from it. I can certainly recommend the book. Uh, I'm enjoying reading it and getting a lot from it. So thanks, Rod. <laughs>